house here at Center for Bioregional Living doing a Permaculture Perspectives podcast. And today I want to talk about oh, a number of different things. We're going to do a couple readings from several different books. We'll look at some excerpts from the Anthropocene by Earl C. Ellis. Earl's one of my favorites because along with Esther Bozerup, he's one of the few to suggest that actually human beings are capable of improving ecological complexity, diversity, and yields for farming needs and communities. Thus, showing the dovetailing, which Bill Mollison points us towards, of ecology and economy very well articulated. So a few readings from that. But I want to start and end with a new pattern I'm going to be using in these podcasts. And I'm going to start with a reading from a book I really enjoy that combines Taoism and evolutionary science. And this book is called The Buddha's Nature. A Practical Guide to Discovering Your Place in the Cosmos by Wes Nisker. We get an endorsement by Jack Cornfield, whose readings and podcasts I really enjoy. Uh, Cornfield spelled with a K. Jack wrote on this book, This is the New Tao of Evolution. So I'll start with a reading from this, and then we'll get into some Earl Ellis and a little about the history of Peru and fire and human evolution. And we'll wrap up with a reading from Krishnamurti, one of my favorite thinkers and authors, a collection of his entitled Total Freedom. So this is from Buddha Nature, Earthborn. He starts with a quote from one of my favorite books, which is entitled What is Life? by Lynn Margulis and Dorian Sagan. Life does not exist on Earth's surface so much as it is the Earth's surface. The reflections begin with the Earth element, which is characterized by solidity, hardness, mass. You can experience these qualities at this very moment in the shape and weight of your body. You can feel your body as a relatively compact mass of matter just like the earth. The earth element within us becomes more clear when we begin to examine our body in relation to the planet earth. While we often reflect on the moon's sway over us, our psyche and blood affected by its changing phases, we seldom are conscious of the earth's much more direct and powerful influence Probably because it is so constant and so near, its name is gravity. Just now, whatever position you are in, become aware of the earth beneath you, or beneath your chair, or the floor. After a few minutes of feeling as if you are on the earth, reflect that instead the mysterious force of gravity is actually holding you here. You might feel it as a gentle tugging, a pull, or even a fond embrace. 
You are always being held to the earth by this force when sitting, lying, walking. You couldn't let go even if you cared to. As simple as this reflection may seem, it can shift our sense of where and who we are. The experience of gravity might even pull down the pants of your pride a little. Yes, you can move around on your own, but due to gravity, you can't move very far and you can't move very fast. The real shift of awareness comes, however, when you begin to sense the fact, substantiated by chemistry and evolutionary sciences, that you are not so much on the earth as you are of the earth. If you believe in the theory of evolution, then you must acknowledge that you literally emerged from the earth and its seas, the source to which all life has been traced. If you agree that life on this planet begins with the sun's energy igniting the essential chemical compounds bathing in seawater, then the earth is indeed your birth mother, and her seas were your amniotic fluids. If you can't accept that, then you must believe that humans were dropped down here from outer space or somehow formed independently from the rest of life. Neither story seems any less miraculous than the other. Take just a few minutes and see if you can experience your body as part of the earth. Begin by once again feeling your body supported by the earth. Feel yourself tightly connected to it like a magnet. Now, shift your perspective to imagine that your body is a living extension of the earth. Having grown out of it, feel that you are an earth sprout that has gained a lot of mobility. You emerged from the earth like a child, but have broken somewhat free of your mother. You will always remain connected, however, and in the end, your body will inevitably return home. And so I wanted to start with that, a grounding kind of reading that combines some evolutionary perspectives, some Buddha nature perspectives, and some biology. And certainly I think one side note comment that I would like to make on this is that I think not only does the story of evolution seem miraculous, it's miraculous in a way that resonates with our practical real-life experience. And those other stories have no empirically verifiable touchstone of phenomenon that you can check in with. Therefore, evolution is superior in terms of its narrative flow for giving us a sense of connectedness, which is what it is that we want, is something that we belong to and are part of, which is the evolution of life on Earth and the web of life. And our fellow human beings, of course. <clears throat> so now we'll shift and I'll read a little from the Anthropocene. This is by Earl Ellis, and Earl 
is a professor of geography and environmental systems at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. His research investigates the ecology of human landscapes at local and global scales towards informing sustainable stewardship of the biosphere in the Anthropocene. This book is entitled Anthropocene, Earl C. Ellis. It's an Oxford publication. It's these kind of smaller, can-fit-in-your-back-pocket books that I've been appreciating. This one is called A Very Short Introduction to the Anthropocene. So I wanted to start with an excerpt here where he breaks down very nicely for us a pattern that I've touched on that's important for us to have a grasp of, and this is in a section entitled The Biosphere. The biosphere, just to give a little context here, historically it's a term that largely I associate with Teilhard de Chardin, who wrote a book called The Phenomenon of Man, a dated title, granted. And in The Phenomenon of Man, Teilhard de coined some very not-so-dated and timeless concepts and words like the nuosphere. The biosphere is the interconnected web of life and what we now might call in a technical sense the biogeochemical processes of how the whole Earth system creates the atmosphere and the environmental conditions on the planet. And this feedback loop of relations between biology, geology, and chemistry was called in an earlier era collectively the biosphere. What Chardin explores is this concept of the nuosphere. The nuosphere is human consciousness and the consciousness of all beings. And it, in the terms of Joseph Chilton Pierce, exists outside of space-time rules and laws. And it is a non-quanta non-localized phenomenon, the nuosphere, consciousness, which means that the way thoughts and ideas can be communicated has nothing to do with the laws of geography and space and time as we understand them. So biosphere, this term goes back also to a Russian scientist whose name is Vernadsky, and here we are in some of Earl Ellis's latest writings in this Oxford text, encountering this term once again, the biosphere. Humans began transforming the biosphere long before agriculture, even before the Holocene hunting and foraging pressures on terrestrial, freshwater, and marine species caused local populations to decline and caused a number of global species extinctions. As human populations spread and grew, hunting and foraging pressures generally increased, though the rise of agriculture displaced these pressures to some degree. With the spread of agriculture, terrestrial species retreated to shrinking habitats, and habitat loss became the primary driver of population declines and extinctions for non-prey species. The story for aquatic species is different. So clearly one message there historically is to recognize that we are in charge of this shrinking of habitat and we can bring back habitat. And that's why we're so avid in our work with the Permaculture Living Land Trust to be active advocates for reforestation and reforestation in a way 
that is protected with good easements and provides a harvest that is accessible for future generations of food crops that will continue to provide yields for literally hundreds of years. So as we plant out the landscape with these historically high production versions of domesticated nut trees and restore the wild ecologies that were here in a much more robust form in the pre-colonial era, we bring back both habitat and productivity. Back to our text here. Increasing societal demands for seafood, including freshwater species, have continued to put intense harvest pressures on wild species dwelling in freshwater, coastal, and marine environments. Outside of a few freshwater and coastal habitats, traditional hunting and foraging pressures were generally insufficient to cause major population declines and extinctions, and the open ocean remained only lightly influenced. Now here's the shift that I want you to pay attention to here. He says, all of that changed with industrial-scale fishing, which means if we stop industrial-scale fishing, the oceans are more than sustainable in their capacity to provide yields. All of that changed with industrial-scale fishing. As fleets of factory ships expanded across the oceans, as populations and demands for seafood grew after 1950, fishing also grew in scale and intensity, including the use of massive nets dragged across the seafloor. Right, so let's stop trawling and net fishing. At the same time, coastal habitats were increasingly transformed by agricultural runoff. That's why we need to transition all agriculture to be at the very least organic. And the construction of urban areas and other infrastructure, including the removal of mangroves and other wetland systems, altering areas key to reproduction of many species. And this is why we want to create revegetation projects and create wetland rings around urban infrastructures with floating pontoons and other ingenious methods that we can create walkways around New York City and Boston and Philadelphia for these reintroduction of mangroves and biodiverse ecologies. Adding to habitat loss and direct exploitation, extinction rates and the functioning of the biosphere as a whole have also been affected by water pollution, and anthropogenic changes in the biogeochemical cycles of nitrogen and phosphorus, industrial toxic pollutants that spread through water from lead to DDT have harmed species both directly and by the accumulation of toxins up the food chain as contaminated organisms are consumed in large quantities by, pre by predators. So then we move on further into the text here to a section that I wanted to share with you because I like his narrative flow and the way he synopsizes some of these key periods that I find particularly interesting to look a little bit more in depth into and to continue to re-explore new material whenever I find it about the origins of domestication and the end of the last ice age, right? So here we are. Societies dependent on agriculture emerged in more than a dozen centers of, domestic, of domestication on every populated continent except Australia. 
some developed in the Pleistocene-Holocene transitions. As in Southwest Asia, South America, and North China, others closer to 6,000 to 8,000 years ago, like Yangtze, China, and Central America, while others developed 4,000 to 5,000 years ago in Africa, India, Southeast Asia, and North American prairies. In some cases, sedentary hunter-gatherers transitioned to farming, as in Southwest Asia or Yangtze, China. In others, mobile hunters took up herding, as in Africa, or Mobile hunter-gatherers engaged in mobile forms of agriculture, like shifting cultivation, as in India, New Guinea, and South America. Agricultural populations grew more rapidly than those of hunter-gatherers, and ultimately displaced them across Earth's most productive lands, both directly and when hunter-gatherers adopted agricultural practices themselves. So that's an important pattern to understand, and maybe already one that's familiar to you. I like the way this author really makes it quite clear what that interaction and the nature of that dynamic has been. That agricultural populations ultimately displaced hunter-gatherers, and that the agriculturalists took over the most productive lands. The social and environmental changes brought by agriculture were far from linear over time. Meaning you don't just break it into some sort of cookie-cutter concept like, oh, as soon as there's agriculture, there's this and there's that. Well, no. Actually, there's a vast array of what the permutations are as far as the social processes of settlement and city construction. In fact, in another podcast, I'm going to go much more in-depth into the history of the first states, where they arose, and the nature of some of those patterns of the evolution of human social structures and settlements. So I'll save that for my next podcast. Countless societies collapsed and began anew. Still, there is a clear long-term trend towards ever-larger scales of agrarian societies supported by increasingly productive land use practices or land use intensification over time. Early practices of shifting cultivation used land for a year or two and then cleared more once soil fertility declined. Agrarian populations' resource demands and social and cultural capacities grew and developed and more labor and energy intensive techniques were adopted to increase the productivity of land including the planting of crops every year, irrigation, manuring, the plow, and other methods. So we'll move on from that section. I wanted to jump to, we're still with Aroelis here, a rich array of integrating concepts that are foundations of permaculture with a more in-depth scientific analysis and a recent update of examples. Here's a term, very permaculture term, where he entitles one of his subsections here on page 117. We're getting further into the book. This is a little uh, synopsis, again, remember, by Oxford that can fit in your back pocket. This in total is somewhere around uh, 170 pages. So on page 117, rambunctious garden. In the Anthropocene, baselines for conservation and restoration are shifting baselines. 
shaped by the changing values and anthropogenic ecological conditions created and sustained by human societies. What is the meaning of natural habitat or natural ecosystem when communities or plants and animals and their relationships with each other and their environments have all been transformed by prior histories of human social change? What does it mean to be a native species in an agricultural landscape or a city where engineered soils, managed vegetation, excess nutrients, pollution, and other human-altered conditions are the norm? Not a disturbance? Perhaps you've marveled at trees growing out of an abandoned building, probably a Lanthus altissima of a tree grows in Brooklyn, weeds growing up through the sidewalk, or even peregrine falcons hunting rats in the city. Species are learning to live in human environments, and some are getting very good at it. Along these lines, bird species with bigger brains like crows and ravens have been found to do better in complex human environments like cities. There is even evidence that introductions of alien species are speeding up the evolution of new species. Ecologist Chris Thomas has shown that in Britain, European rhododendrons have hybridized with their North American relatives to generate new wild populations and a hybrid of two species of fruit fly has evolved to colonize invading honeysuckles in North America. Most importantly, human societies are actively bringing back and learning to live with species they once killed off with impunity, witness the return of wolves to their ancient hunting grounds in Europe, and black bears, mountain lions, and coyotes across the USA. Life still thrives in what writer Emma Morris has called the rambunctious garden of the Anthropocene. I love that term. Very permaculture term. Let's not get attached. Let's observe and let's have some fun watching this dynamic show. Let me start that sentence again for you. Life still thrives in what writer Emma Morris has called the rambunctious garden of the Anthropocene in which novel ecosystems form the new wild. In an increasingly anthropogenic biosphere, new relationships are forming. Societies, people, wildlife, and entire ecosystems are co-evolving and co-creating new forms of nature in addition to conserving and restoring those that came before. And I really appreciate that viewpoint. It's a broad perspective where we're pulling back and asking more lengthy questions of the cycles of evolution. And it opens up a much wider horizon of possibilities for our directions to continue to emerge and manifest our well-being in. So here we are getting close to one of the last sections I wanted to read to you from this book. Human societies are far more than a disturbance to an otherwise natural world. Human social systems have emerged as a planetary force within the Earth system, an anthroposphere that is actively shaping and sustaining an anthropogenic biosphere. Human social networks are now woven globally into the web of life. Decisions made in one place can change ecology, on the other side of the planet, and even globally. Human and natural systems are globally telecoupled. 
as humans continue constructing their niche across the planet. Earth is functioning more and more like a social ecological system with a social metabolism geared towards sustaining increasingly wealthy and demanding human populations. Already, more than 90% of Earth's total mammal biomass is composed of humans and domesticated animals. How far can this go? Are there no limits to how many people and how much transformation Earth's ecology can handle? Limits to Growth Long before Thomas Malthus published his essay on the principle of population in 1798, the question, how many people can Earth support, was asked and answered many times. For example, Antoni von Leo Venohek computed this figure to be 13.4 billion in 1679. Nevertheless, ever since Darwin used Malthus's dictum that populations are limited by scarce resources to explain his theory of natural selection, this concept has been central to scientific debates about the planetary limits of human populations. In the 1920s, ecologists formalized this as carrying capacity, the environmental limits to a population's growth in a given environment. When populations grew beyond their carrying capacity, it was argued a crash was imminent. Concern over limits to human carrying capacity on Earth came to a head in 1968 with Stanford ecologist Paul Ehrlich's book, the population bomb, which predicted that hundreds of millions would starve to death in the 1970s from overpopulation. In 1972, an influential book, The Limits to Growth, used earlier computer simulations to explore the grave consequences for the natural ecological balance of the Earth when populations grew beyond a global equilibrium. In 1994, Ehrlich stated that the present population of 5.5 billion was clearly exceeded the capacity of Earth to sustain it. Paul Ehrlich has made major contributions to the science of ecology, but the famines he predicted have yet to occur. Earth's current population of more than 7 billion is much better fed, healthier, and living longer than at any time in human history. Rates of population growth have slowed dramatically since the 1970s and are continuing to decline, mostly as a result of the demographic transition in which more urban, better educated populations tend to have much smaller families. Earth's human populations are continuing to urbanize and population growth rates are continuing to drop. It is possible that human populations might reach 16 billion by 2100 and continue growing, but the mainstream prediction of demographers is that population will level off at about 11 billion in 2100. <clears throat> so as we look at these broader questions of directions of growth, what's predictable, what's not, I was sharing that piece with you to give you a sense of how there are many perspectives and possibilities for where we have to go in the future and how to understand where we are in the present. And so now I'm going to shift gears here and I wanted to read to you a section from a book I've been really enjoying by John Reeder on the potato. And here Reeder gives us a really beautiful description of Peru 
that I found very eye-opening for understanding why so much ingenious development of canal systems and water integration into agriculture. Another site I'm going to touch on here and talk about is Tiwanaku in Bolivia and understanding more about how important the Ayamara understanding was of both throwing a good party and not pulling some heavy hierarchical trip on everybody in the area, which helps your uh, culture to expand in a way that was a very extensive area and have incredible festivals and parties at 10,000 feet by growing potatoes with elaborate canal systems around Lake Titicaca. So here we go. This is from Potato, John Reeder. Peru has one of the most difficult and demanding landscapes in the world. Forests start only 3% of its land is suitable for growing food crops, thus the terraces and water systems. Compared with 21% in the United States and over 30% in Europe, and the problems of inadequate arable land are intensified in Peru by the extremes of its three distinct geographical regions, the arid coastal plain, the snow-capped Andean chain, and the lush tropical forest. Indeed, Peru is a land of extremes and paradox. Rainfall is almost non-existent on the coast, overabundant in the tropical forest, and highly variable in the mountains. Paradoxically, the arid coastal plain is the country's most productive agricultural region. Since the narrow desert strip, 90 kilometers wide and 1,800 kilometers long, is cut through by some 50 rivers that drain the Andes into the Pacific Ocean. Over a million liters per second rush off the western slopes of the Andean chain. The river valleys lie like green snakes across the drab gray desert, with irrigation canals carrying their waters to farms and extensive plantations of sugar and cotton. Thus, the region with least rainfall contributes far more to national production than the lush tropical forest, which gets most. In terms of productivity as well as geography, the Andean highlands fall between these two extremes but are especially important as they contain virtually all the country's rain-fed agricultural land and are a vital source of food crops, including, of course, potatoes. Now imagine in this narrative if they weren't wasting so much of their effort and resources on growing export crops that yield no benefit to the local population in terms of true sustenance like production crops of cotton and sugar. What a waste of land space. 10 million people, 36% of Peru's population, live in the Andes at altitudes of 3,000 meters and above. The majority are the Huicha descendants of the hunters and gatherers who first established a human presence in the mountains 12,000 years ago. It was they who first domesticated the potato. They who created the Inca Empire and were cruelly reduced to less than 10% of their number by the Spanish conquest and the diseases it introduced. Their descendants are a resilient stock who came through that genetic bottleneck with a stoic and unhurried capacity for survival that persists to this day. The towns are in the valleys with the valleys containing major centers such as Cusco, 
Kucho, Juana Cayu, and Juana Cavaleca are already more than 3,000 meters above sea level, while the majority of the population lives in farming communities at even higher elevations on the slopes and plateau above. Theirs is an exceptionally demanding environment where solar radiation is intense, but temperatures generally low. Snow and frosts are seasonally frequent, but rainfall erratic. And most limiting of all from a human point of view, oxygen pressure is far lower than at sea level. New arrivals always feel distressingly short of breath, and many are stricken with severe headaches and nausea. They tire easily, sleep badly, and may experience disconcerting bouts of mental disorientations. Their bodies adapt after a while, but never completely. Even years of living at altitude will not enable migrants to match the work capacity of the Weechaw, who were born and raised there. We do have great morphological adaptive capacities to our environment, and changing our own health by engaging more of our bodies with our landscape by climbing trees and running in the woods not on developed trails is a key way to continue your own vitality staying intact. So now I'm going to wrap up with a reading from this collection that I mentioned from Krishnamurti. The collection is called Total Freedom. Now, if you want to stop violence, if you want to stop wars, how much vitality, how much of yourself do you give to it? Isn't it important to you that your children are killed? That your sons go into the army where they are bullied and butchered? Don't you care? My God, if that doesn't interest you, what does? Guarding your money? Having a good time? Taking drugs? Don't you see that this violence in yourself is destroying your children? Or do you see it only as some abstraction? Alright then, if you are interested, attend with all your heart and mind to find out. Don't just sit back and say, well, tell us all about it. I point out to you that you cannot look at anger nor at violence with eyes that condemn or justify and that if this violence is not a burning problem to you, you cannot put these two things away. So first you have to learn. You have to learn how to look at anger, how to look at your husband, your wife, your children. You have to listen to the politician. You have to learn why you are not objective, why you condemn or justify. You have to learn that you condemn and justify, because it is part of the social structure you live in, your conditioning, as a German, as an Indian, as an American, or whatever you happen to have been born, with all the dulling of the mind that this conditioning results in. To learn to discover something fundamental, you must have the capacity to go deeply if you have a blunt instrument, a dull instrument, you cannot go deeply. So what we are doing is sharpening the instrument, which is the mind. The mind, which has been made dull by all this justifying and condemning. 
You can penetrate deeply only if your mind is as sharp as a needle and as strong as a diamond. It is no good just sitting back and asking, How am I to get such a mind? You have to want it as you want your next meal. And to have it, you must see that what makes your mind dull and stupid is this sense of invulnerability which has built walls around itself and which is part of this condemnation and justification. If the mind can be rid of that, then you can look, study, penetrate, and perhaps come to a state that is totally aware of the whole problem. So let us come back to the central issue. Is it possible to eradicate violence in ourselves? It is a form of violence to say, you haven't changed, why haven't you? I am not doing that. It doesn't mean a thing to me to convince you of anything. It is your life, not my life. The way you live is your affair. I am asking whether it is possible for a human being living psychologically in any society to clear violence from himself inwardly. If it is, the very process will produce a different way of living in the world. Most of us have accepted violence as a way of life. Two dreadful wars have taught us nothing except to build more and more barriers between human beings. That is, between you and me. But, for those of us who want to be rid of violence, how is it to be done? I do not think anything is going to be achieved through analysis, either by ourselves or by a professional. We might be able to modify ourselves slightly, live a little more quietly and a little more affectionately, but in itself, it will not give total perception. But I must know how to analyze, which means that in the process of analysis, my mind becomes extraordinarily sharp. And it is that quality of sharpness, of attention, of seriousness, which will give total perception. One hasn't the eyes to see the whole thing at a glance. The clarity of the eye is possible only if one can see the details, then jump. Some of us, in order to rid ourselves of violence, have used a concept, an ideal, called nonviolence. And we think by having an ideal of the opposite to violence, nonviolence, we can get rid of the fact, the actual. But we cannot. We have had ideals without number. All the sacred books are full of them. Yet, we are still violent. So why not deal with violence itself and forget the word altogether? If you want to understand the actual you, must give your whole attention, all your energy to it. That attention and energy are distracted when you create a fictitious, ideal world. So can you completely banish the ideal? The man who is really serious with the urge to find out what truth is, what love is, has no concept at all. He lives only in what is. To investigate the fact of your own anger, you must pass no judgment on it. For the moment you conceive of its opposite, you condemn it, and therefore you cannot see it as it is. When you say you dislike or hate someone, that is a fact, although it sounds terrible. 
If you look at it, go into it completely, it ceases. But if you say, I must not hate, I must not, I must have love in my heart. If you look at it, go into it completely, it ceases. But if you say, I must not hate, I must have love in my heart, then you are living in a hypocritical world with double standards. To live completely, fully in the moment, is to live with what is, the actual, without any sense of condemnation or justification. Then you understand it so totally that you are finished with it. When you see clearly, the problem is solved. But can you see the face of violence clearly? The face of violence not only outside you, but inside you, which means that you are totally free from violence because you have not admitted ideology through which to get rid of it. This requires very deep meditation, not just a verbal agreement or disagreement. You have now you have now read a series of statements, but have you really understood? Your conditioned mind, your way of life, the whole structure of the society in which you live, prevent you from looking at a fact and being entirely free from it immediately. You say, I will think about it. I will consider whether it is possible to be free from violence or not. I will try to be free. That is one of the most dreadful statements you can make. I will try. There is no trying, no doing your best. Either you do it or you don't do it. You are admitting time while the house is burning. The house is burning as a result of the violence throughout the world and in yourself. And you say, let me think about it. Which ideology is best to put out the fire? When the house is on fire, do you argue about the color of the hair of the man who brings you the water? So no more arguing about idiosyncrasies. Let's get on with the real work. And I look forward to you listening to my next podcast. And give me any feedback about this one. And enjoying our time on this earth as we rock it around the sun together.